Well, thank you to our colleagues at Earth Matters. Um, Indeed, Earth Matters and so do we. Indeed, and the Earth does matter. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> All right, uh, welcome listeners to this week's news from the Drug Warfront, brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy. Karma is a peer-based, community-controlled drug use organisation with over two decades serving the community in the ACT. Now, the aim of the show is to obviously provide news um, from the war on people who use drugs. And uh, also, Marion and I debate and encourage people to think about um, what they think about prohibition, whether it's worth continuing on. Um, despite what, their, what their reasons for or against it. What, that's what we want to know. I mean, that's what we're talking about and that's what we want people to start thinking for themselves. Indeed. Yeah? A conversation is the, the first starting place to, Absolutely. to change. Because um, certainly from our point of view, prohibition has really just brought a lot of death and misery and damage and harm um, that really goes back to the 1961 United Nations Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs, which is a long time ago, Marion. A very long time ago. And although the last five years have seen some thawing of prohibition in some countries, sadly, uh, most of these policies remain largely unchanged throughout the world. And we acknowledge the efforts and in many cases sacrifices of peers and activists throughout the globe who have contributed to the struggle against the war on people who use drugs. And News from the Drug War Front, as I said before, aims to encourage debate and inform and educate listeners about the failure of prohibition. Indeed. Okay, so Karma, um, as most people know, is the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy and uh, actually brings this, this radio program to you via us. It provides a wide range of services for drug users and indeed for anybody. And uh, I defy anyone to say that they're not a drug user, even if they just use uh, coffee. Um, peer treatment support is provided, advocacy for drug users, peer education, creative arts, mentoring and referrals. Karma and The Connection, which is um, the peer education organisation for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients, are co-located at Belconnen Churches Centre at Shop 17, Level 1, ben- 54 Benjamin Way. There's a drop-in centre uh, which is open, again, from 10am to 4pm, but if you want an appointment, you're probably better to ring first on 6253-3643 and make an appointment with somebody and probably it's easier to make an appointment outside of the organisation because it is a small space, relatively, uh, and if you get a couple of people in to have an appointment at the same time, there really isn't the room for the privacy that you need. So in this nice weather, as long as it lasts, make the most of it. And uh, But get in touch with us if you want some information or assistance with advice and advocacy around opioid maintenance treatment like methadone, suboxone and injectable buprenorphine implants, accessing treatment for hepatitis C, and we've got some news about that in this issue this week, helping people to cope with and overcome the impact of stigma and discrimination directed towards people using illicit drugs by the mainstream media in particular, helping people to access detox, rehab and other drug treatment services. Karma offers a walk-in health clinic and doctor and nurse in attendance from 10am to 2pm every Wednesday. 
Uh, it offers peer education workshops, including opioid overdose maintenance training, which incorporates a, t- a take-home naloxone, Mura Goody, which is the Connections Harm Reduction Peer Education Program for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients, The Fix, which is a series of one-hour workshops that aim to educate people in all aspects of harm reduction in the illicit, in the illicit drug use spectrum. Come and the Connection provide assistance and advocacy for people who are experiencing issues around housing, who isn't, police, the courts and child custody and Centrelink. If you're having problems associated with drug and alcohol use and don't know where to get help or even if you just want to talk about your drug use with someone who can empathise with your experience because they are there or they've been there themselves. And you won't be judged for it. So give Karma a call. So that number again, 6253-3643. And if we can't help you, we'll find someone who can. Well said, Marion. Okay, uh, this news from the drug oh, news from the drug war front reports on news stories that are relevant to illicit drug users from Australia, but also around the world. And many of the articles that are featured in the program come from other sources, including the mainstream media. The contents of this broadcast do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Karma and the Connection. Karma does not condone nor condemn drug use, and we do not promote illegal activity. However. We recognise that drug use happens and will continue to happen regardless of laws and United Nations conventions. <clears throat> Excuse me. As such, Karma focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support services, advocacy and community development. We seek to reduce the harms associated with drug use and its criminalisation through the provision of programs that foster community development and the delivery of person-centred holistic health care. Karma advocates for equity of health service delivery for all people. Indeed it does. And that seems not unreasonable. Um, well, nothing unreasonable in there to expect. And really, karma is just treating people as humans and ex- the human rights that we should all be entitled to, we are all entitled to, but somehow drug users seem to be bypassed when it comes to that or discussion about their drug use, and it is really a very intimate discussion, Mm. your drug use. So we understand why people might find it very difficult to talk about their drug use with people other than those who are in the same position or have been through the same experience that they've been through. So all of those things that Karma does and Karma represents are all things that the workers at Karma are sympathetic with or empathic with with because they've been there, done that, and it's or what are ma- still there and doing that. It's what makes peer-based um, organisations that's what peer unique. Based, yeah. That's what peer means, yeah. yeah, in the same place. All right, let's uh, go to a song. I've uh, picked a Dandy Warhol song. Um, it's probably their most well-known one. It's uh, Bohemian Like You, the Dandy Warhols. All right, that was the Dandy Warhols and uh, Bohemian Like You. Okay, it's uh, coming up about uh, 10.43 a.m. on 2XX, 98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. And uh, just wanted to mention that the Reach, Teach, Treat um, collaboration between uh, Hepatitis ACT and Karma is uh, kicking back into top gear um, on the 19th of May with a barbecue and a catch-up to find out and inform people about the details about the continuation of the program. 
Uh, it's a peer project for people who have hepatitis C. I'm pleased to hear it's going again. Is yeah. someone starting a new project, Jeffrey, or is it just? Well, I think it's just. Is it a reviewing what's happened already? I think it's you know you need a new they needed a new phlebotomist because I think ah, Chris right. left and that's a shame. Yeah, just I think issues yeah, like that more than because we had good feedback about Chris and very his, good feedback. Yeah. yeah, and and Chris, if you're listening, you should know that we had very good feedback about your performance and your ability to. You know, take advice because that's one of the problems with phlebotomy. I've got a friend who went to get uh, blood taken the other day who had a huge argument with the guy who was meant to be taking her blood because she said, I'm not having you mucking up my veins. Mm. And ended up not having blood taken because she wouldn't let him muck up her veins that looked. But she knew would pop. She knew would. Um. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. No. No. It's, it's, it's just it's, one of those arguments, Jeffrey. That the drug users have all the time. We know where our veins are. We know where you can get them. If and if we don't, we will take advice on it. But it irritates me when people, when you want to tell someone that no, that one doesn't work. Mm. That one. That one will pop. And it's a real discriminatory thing. If you're a drug user and an illicit injector, you're treated like dirt. Mm. It's the same problem, you know, discrimination and stigmatisation of drug users. And this is the good thing about the hep C. Absolutely. Double so gain. it will be back into Top Gear. So, uh, as I said, 19th of May with the barbecue from 2 till 5pm. Um, essentially, you get... Uh, paid to clear your hepatitis C. Um, you can call now, and I've got a couple of numbers um, if you've got a pen handy, 6230-6344. That's 6230-6344. Or, and this is the mobile number, 0436-290-999. That's 0436-290-999. So get tested, get treated, get cured, get supported. Um, and get money. Yeah, and, and remember, it was used to be called incentivised when we first met Mary Jane. She said it called it incentivised. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, "Does that mean you get money for it?" She said, "Yep, that's what it means. It's actually quite well funded. It's quite good value. And not only do you get rid of your hepatitis C and get your liver back into quality, you know, quality um, condition, mm. transmission. I mean, you can." It's back to the standard of being able to be used as a um, as a donor organ, which is extraordinary. Now that's amazing yeah. for for a hepatitis infected liver. Yeah. yeah. No, in the old days, there'd be no chance of absolutely being a candidate. For- and not only that, but you know the the old drugs used to have so many problems associated with them, but these ones very little in the way of side effects, if any. Yeah. And a very high and cure only rate. eight weeks, eight to twelve weeks yeah. of duration, Most which is fabulous. One pill a day for eight weeks, yeah. Yeah, and you and they're paid for by the program, so you you don't get paid. You get paid for turning up, just for doing it, and they pay for your drugs to get you better and get you well, it's get you better, get rid of that program. hepatitis C and yeah. fix up your liver. Yep. All right. Um, the first story is uh, one by. Dr. David Caldicott, uh, that was published in The Conversation on April the 27th, pill testing really does reduce the risk of harm for drug users. 
Days out from the event, festival goers for Canberra's Groove in the Moo Festival, as we talked about uh, in previous shows, were told that the event would no longer be offering a free drug checking service. After Pill Testing Australia, which provides the testing service, had public liability insurance withdrawn without explanation from insurers. Yeah. Which was. I don't understand that. I mean, for two years it was okay. How come all of a sudden it's not insurable? There's some mystery behind it, which I'm not sure. Sounds what, dodgy, I reckon. And and it upset a lot of people who paid to you know come and offer their services. I think pro bono. When the first thing with with happened with AIDS too. They had great problems getting uh, in, health insurance, or travel insurance. Sorry, travel health insurance for people who were HIV infected. So they've always had arguments with the with the um, insurance industry over issues like that. Mm. Anyway, pill, pill testing in the Australian Capital Territory was uh, hard fought and won, and this represents a setback for an intervention that can reduce the harms of drug consumption. Mm, so a history of pill testing in Australia. In Australia, the ACT has been ahead of other states in applying innovative drug policies. In 2018, it gave permission for Australia's first trial of pill testing at a music festival. Pill testing, or drug checking as it's often called internationally, is a harm reduction intervention with clear benefits. Acknowledging a drug-free Australia is magical thinking and that some people will always use drugs and that some people will always use drugs, pill testing provides consumers with information about the actual content of their chosen substance so they might make better decisions about the consumption of them. It also gives us access to an otherwise invisible group of, quote, functional drug users. Advocates have been working to have pill testing made legal in Australia since the early 2000s, 2000s. Um, And while there was apprehension in the ACT in 2018, it was deemed a huge success in its first trial there at its first trial. Colleagues in other states have followed the progress in the ACT with interest, but several proposals have stumbled as a consequence of political or ideological objections by conservative elements. Yeah, the next subheading is pill testing reduces drug drug harms. Since 2002, several studies have clearly shown that pill testing has never been associated with increased drug use or drug-related harm. No, mat- no matter how much opponents of pill testing would have us believe. Work conducted by colleagues from the Australian National University shows quite clearly a deep trust by those using the service and in broader health services providing services to drug users. And that's unique in a lot of ways, yes, isn't it? Yes, and yeah. really important. Yep. Research increasingly confirms pill testing does influence the behaviour of people who use drugs, especially when pill testing results show unexpected results or drugs of concern. From our own work in Canberra, we've also found consumers spaced out their doses, reduced doses or even disposed of their drugs following conversations with those providing the service. These general findings have been corroborated by several coronial inquests in Australia into music festival deaths and a special inquiry commissioned by the New South Wales government. Both recommended, independently, further trials of pill testing in those jurisdictions as have subsequent coronial inquiries in Victoria. The Australian Medical Association also officially supports calls for medically supervised, ethically approved pill testing. Such has been the success of the festival-based testing in Canberra, a fixed site is now on the cusp of opening. 
ensuring that a service that functioned only at music festivals and for the demographic groups that attend them can now be extended to benefit a broader group of consumers over a longer period of time. That's great. That is, that is great. Yeah, really uh, good. Idea. Really um, positive development. And the ACT leading the way again. Yep. There is no research comparing festivals that did or did not deploy pill testing. It would uh, be quite the challenge. It would be quite the design challenge to try to conduct controlled experiments in the chaos of a music festival. But we can follow the behaviours of those who participate in the pill testing process. And when we do, most early indications suggest those who use drugs change their behaviour in such a way as to be less likely to result in harm. Mm. Harm reduction. Yep. What's happened to ensure pill testing goes ahead is the next heading. In this recent incident, instance, the issue was not with government but with private insurers. We cannot say what made them pull out, but the fact that a private entity determined the course of public health policy is a disappointment and should not be allowed to happen again. Given the manner and timing in which this was done, and, you know, just back to the issue, it was like two weeks before the, the festival was due to happen that they, the insurers said, no, it can't, we're not going to insure you for public, <coughs> public um, what's it called? Public liability Public liability, you're right. Um, It suggests that prevention of pill testing was the intended outcome. Prevention of pill testing was the the, uh, intended outcome. Governments could address this by requiring insurers to provide the actuarial basis for any decisions they make about insurance. They might also consider their insurance options when choosing insurance providers. Selecting those prepared to support evidence-based health care. Pill testing, now established in the ACT, is not going away. It's only a matter of time before other jurisdictions find a way to introduce their own systems in their own way. Insurers should be trying to win customers with ethical and evidence-based policies. Harm reduction is insurance not just for people who use or have used drugs, but also for people who love people who use drugs. Between these two groups that represents a lot of Australians, all of them who have choices as to where that to source their insurance products. David Caldercott is a senior lecturer at Australian National University at the ANU. And he's been a staunch supporter of oh, the whole. Yeah. He's also an expert in many fields. He worked in the in the liver, you know, hepatology in the liver clinic. He's worked in all a er- lot of areas in the ACT related to drug use, and he is absolutely an expert and a very great supporter of. I wouldn't say legalising drug use, but of looking after drug users, making it as yeah. safe as possible. Yeah. Which is reducing the the stigma and the discrimination, encouraging them to come in and be, you know, part of society because they are just many of the people that are walking around that you just can't tell the drug users. Yeah. Yeah. Drug users aren't don't all look like stereotypical junkies. No. No. Can look like any any person. Look like anybody, yep. There's a few comments, one by Dave McRae, who says, while this pill testing business might just help someone avoid a serious harm, and it also might not, in a 
bigger picture view, it's a sorry excuse for genuine health policy. To me, it's akin to having testing for whiskey, rum, beer and wine to ensure they don't have some toxic substance other than alcohol in them, mm. thus giving drinkers confidence to consume with abandon to the point of drinking themselves into oblivion. It wouldn't exactly safeguard health. No, well, remember what happened in Prohibition yeah. with the alcohol in the United States, the, the crap that they had in the so-called alcohol in Bath those days was just, yeah. it was murderous. And even, you know, in Central Australia, they used to put the methylated spirits in the fridge. Yeah. And you just, you've you got to worry about stuff like that. Yeah. There's another comment by David Sutton. Public health policies just need to be functional and efficacious rather than to appease the moral indication of a few fogies. Alcohol products are already tested, especially spirits for methanol. In fact, one of the reasons behind the addition of vitamin B in food fortification to bread is because of nutritional deficiency often experienced by alcoholics. You've managed to perfectly articulate the perspective of the moral authoritarian Puritans. I could supply evidence of why the puritanical approach to drugs and alcohol is fundamentally destructive, but I suspect the effort won't be appreciated, so I can't be bothered. <laughs> oh, David, don't worry, we'll read it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you want to do the last one? Yeah, sure. Look, the comment by Greg Denham, who was in reply to uh, David McRae, which was the first one that Geoffrey read out. Dear David, whiskey, etc., does have testing for toxicity. It's called a distillery or brewery. That's why, why when people use alcohol, they know exactly what's in it so it's safer. If people want to drink themselves into oblivion, there's plenty of information about the risks involved. We just want the same for party drugs, which I might add are generally safer than alcohol, and Greg, especially after they've been tested. Yeah, yeah? he's had a lot of experience um, working for Victoria Police and also involved with law enforcement against prohibition. Um, it's this Greg Denham, Greg did Denham, you say? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it was good to see him uh, commenting in reply to the. Initial comment. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, drugs is drugs is drugs, Jeffrey. Yeah, and it's true. You know, the 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 amount of alcohol in any given drink um, is is there to be seen. It's on a label on the yep. bottle. Yeah, yeah. And one of the big problems that they had for a long time, and maybe they do still have. I remember the only reason that I ever thought about. Going back to drinking article was sorry alcohol drinking article was because, <laughs> which word was that um, was because they had those um, mudlark drinks yeah that that had uh, quite strong um, well I think it was nine percent alcohol or something in little bottles but it tasted like it was like uh, it just tasted like caramel uh, milk. And it wasn't. It was actually really quite, quite strong. alcohol, yeah. very strong. Yep. Um, and I've noticed down at my local shops, they no longer send the, sell them in ones. You've got to buy a packet of four. Um, so I actually thought they would have taken them off the market because they're really encouraging younger people to uh, use alcohol, particularly if you don't like the taste of alcohol. Yeah. Because it doesn't taste like alcohol Try and at cover all. it up with something. Yeah. Yeah. It, it looks like it's like um, it. 
it looks like uh, Bailey's Irish cream. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. And which is, and it, uh, that's probably what it is, plus something else. Mm. But it, yeah, it's a, a real worry. But as as the whole point of this is, at least when you buy your alcohol, you, you know you know what's in it, and you know and what it's the risks not are. Not adulterated with something nasty. That's and know. we're coming out with new stuff. I mean, in the last couple of weeks, we've had that research come out about the the uh, effect on the cancerous effect of alcohol, hmm. which was news to me. Yeah. Jeffrey, yeah, for a long time, I don't think people were aware of that. No, no. And had never, it had never been said. And it's only they only bring out information like that when they decide they want to talk. They want to discourage people from doing that, like tobacco. We were encouraged, encouraged for what fifty years to smoke. Yep. And Those suddenly, tactics no? were very successful. Yep. All right, uh, we're coming up to the uh, news, national news, and then we shall return. We will. All right, it's four minutes after 11. Welcome back to this week's news from the drug war front, brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Home Minimisation and Advocacy and The Connection, which provides uh, similar services for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients. Um, I just noticed yesterday that the Greens uh, were announcing their legalised cannabis policy at Nimbin Town Hall um, yesterday uh, with the the heading Just Legalise It. And uh, essentially the Greens say that they will use the balance of power uh, in federal parliament, should they earn that uh, privilege, for urgent cannabis reform. And um, New South Wales Senate candidate David Shoebridge and the Greens candidate for Page, Kashmir Miller, were in Nimbin calling for urgent national laws to legalise cannabis. Decades of failed policy has seen the state and national police fighting a damaging and futile war against a weed, together with the millions of Australians who've used it in their lifetime. With uh, state governments failing to move on cannabis law reform, the Greens will be using the balance of power in the federal parliament to legalise cannabis on a national level. So that's really heartening that, um, you know, the Greens, who are, a, you know, a legitimately um, decent-sized political party, have taken the courage to call for legalisation of cannabis, and um, that's to be supported. Okay, might go to a song. Uh, This is John Cooper Clark and uh, Beasley Street. A fairly bleak as... (laughs) Oh, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Look at human nature, but um, uh, it's uh, John Cooper Clark. Human nature is indeed fairly bleak at the moment, Geoffrey. I'm finding it really... I'm finding it every morning I get up 6.30... And watch Al Jazeera and the BBC and, you know, the overseas news. And it's very much concentrating on the Ukraine. And it really is depressing. Yeah. Really very depressing. Yeah, well, it's hard to see just people suffering. and Yeah. yeah. But it's it's remarkable because the Ukrainians have, have a vested interest in looking after their country, whereas the Russians... As many people as they send in, they're not invested in this war. No. The the actual soldiers aren't invested in the war, it seems. Only Putin seems to be. Yeah. Anyway, look, that's just my opinion, but yeah. just seems to me that why do you have to have a war to make people feel passionate about their country? Yeah. That's a very interesting question. 
Anyway. Uh, th- this piece came from the ABC News uh, website and um, my colleague Damien pointed it out to me and it's quite interesting. It uh, talks about a fellow called Rod who's been using heroin for 38 years. In this, Victoria. In yeah. Victoria. Mm. This is what he wants you to know about drug addiction. So by Ashley Barraclough, ABC News, May the 1st. When Rod was homeless, he needed to find places that he could inject heroin without being seen. That's how he ended up overdosing in the bathroom at the Victoria Park train station. He said that he would have died if it had not been for the person who happened to be in the stall next to him who called an ambulance. After 38 years of using heroin in a country with a criminalised approach to illegal drugs, Rod, which is not his real name, said stigma and incarceration were endangering people's lives. Quote, I don't think it's helpful for people that are using drugs to feel like you have to do it in the shadows or in the margins, he said. in the toilets. Well, yeah, yeah, and that's... And that's been the same in Canberra too, Oh, absolutely. Not an uncommon thing. Not uncommon at all, no. Drug decriminalisation is a controversial topic in Victoria, where non-medical marijuana remains criminalised, unlike in South Australia, the ACT and the Northern Territory. Addiction specialists argue that decriminalisation allows drugs to be used more safely and saves lives, and has done so in countries that have decriminalised, like in Portugal, whilst opponents say it would encourage drug use. Mm-hmm. That old fervy. Oh, yes, old hoary old argument. Yeah. Rod started using when he was 17 and living in an abusive household. He grew up in a working-class part of Melbourne's northern suburbs where he said young people turned to drugs because there was really not much else to do. And he's quoted as saying, I started using because my friends started using. My friends meant everything to me, and so I found solace in that sort of camaraderie. He's now in his 50s, and his drug usage has become something to manage. The truth is I've never been able to stop. Rod spoke to the ABC on the condition of anonymity because of the stigma surrounding illicit drug use. Uh, Quote, it's a very isolating and lonely place, he said. There's a lot of shame attached to being a drug user. Mm. Withdrawing in the police cell. Oh, God, why this... That Aboriginal woman in Central Australia died was actually, you know, was actually um, an indirect result of withdrawing from heroin. Yes, I saw that, yeah. Rod said places where he scores drugs are heavily policed, which has resulted in him being arrested for possession. Quote, I've never been to prison per se, but I've spent a lot of time in, in the cell, he said. Being in the cell usually lasts a few hours, which leads to painful withdrawals. Quote, withdrawal is one of the most abhorrent feelings that you'll ever experience. You're physically ill and that happens in the next cell, he said. The police don't take you to a detox or to a doctor that can prescribe you pharmacotherapy. You're released back onto the street. They don't see you as someone that's had their own life, their own history. What does drug decriminalisation mean, the next heading? Quote, in essence, decriminalisation refers to a reduction of legal penalties. This can be done either by changing them to civil penalties, such as fines, or by diverting drug use offenders away from criminal conviction and into educational treatment options, also known as diversion. Decriminalisation largely applies to drug use and possession offences, not to sale or supply of drugs. Alison Ritter, Director of Policy Drug Policy Modelling Program at the University of New South Wales, said, Victorian Police Assist- uh, Assistant Commissioner Tony Langdon said, 
the police's focus was on arresting and prosecuting drug, drug dealers while connecting those suffering from addiction to support services. Quote, as part of Victoria Police's 20 to 25 drug strategy, where appropriate police will look to divert and refer people who need help into appropriate services, while also continuing to trial different ways of supporting programs and services which are effective in reducing the harmful effects of drugs and related problems, he said. Goes on to say this includes supporting public education and awareness around the impact of drug use, using early referral processes, increasing police discretion for diversion, and encouraging the use of treatment services. And how which, comprehensive are those treatment services? Well, where are they? More well, to the point, and I mean, what Rod says flies in the face of that, doesn't it? I would have thought so. Yeah, if he's being arrested and held until he's drug until he's the dope wears off, so he's hanging out when he gets out onto the street. What's he going to do? Go straight back and score or go and get money so he can get straight back yep. into scoring. Yeah. It's just crazy. And the cycle goes on, yeah. Uh, the next subheading is former police sergeant says the system, quote, traumatises drug users. Yes. Uh, Greg Denham, who we had a um, comment before on the previous story, yep. is a former Victoria Police senior sergeant turned alcohol and other drug AOD worker at CoHealth, who does outreach with drug users in Melbourne's western suburbs. Quote, we are a service that they can trust, where they know that they're not going to be judged, he said. He said the police usually have good intentions around dealing with drug users, but it's so far removed from their lives. The people on the street injecting who are part of the drug scene obviously see the police as the enemy. Mr Denham said many pe people he deals with turn to drugs because of trauma and mental health issues, which is exacerbated by the police response. Which, and, and which we say every week. Yeah. Well, I do anyway. Yeah. No, well, <laughs> and have said yeah. for many We've been saying years. forever. Yeah. Um, exacerbated by the police response. Uh, and he goes on to say they're picked up for a minor offence of drug use and that reinforces and traumatises them, he said. He said overdose is common, so he and other alcohol and other drug workers carry naloxone a drug that can temporarily reverse an opioid overdose, which we talk about the naloxone program all the time. As we do, yeah. To administer before the ambulance arrives. We also encourage people to go and get the naloxone themselves so they carry it on them, he said. We would like police officers to carry naloxone like they do in Western Australia. I as think it's a perfectly good idea. Addiction specialist says alcohol is the most harmful drug. Dan Lubman, Executive Clinical Director of Addiction Treatment and Research Centre Turning Point, said Australia needs to have an, quote, honest conversation about drug criminalisation. The war on drugs has been one of the most catastrophic policy failures in history in terms of the impact that it's had, he said. Quote, despite putting billions of dollars into this, we've seen an extended drug market and more dangerous drug supply controlled by organised crime. A major study which Professor Lubman contributed to found alcohol was the most uh, to found found uh, professor loveman contributed to found alcohol was the most harmful drug in the country when considering the harms to both the user and others and that's been found or said in other well yes we've got another article jeffrey another um, press release that actually gives the figures related to that you mm. know in fact overdose is the problem 
with um, drug use, but in terms of uh, alcohol consumption, that's really the most damaging drug in our society. We've already had... Well, he supports drug decriminalisation. Sorry, we have this arbitrary legal definition of what is a good drug and what is a bad drug. He supports drug decriminalisation, which he said remains removing criminal penalties for people found in possession of drugs. Quote, we already have a sort of de facto decriminalisation through drug diversion programs, which operate in every state and territory, Professor Lubman says. This involves diverting people found in possession of drugs to education programs rather than handling them, handing them a criminal charge. However, he said the caution and diversion system in its current form is not working as the decision is at police discretion. A report by the Victorian Parliament found Victoria's police overall use of cautions as opposed to charges has declined over the past decade. It found young Aboriginal people and young people in low socioeconomic groups were less likely to receive a caution. Assistant Commissioner Langdon said Victoria Police instituted a policy in July last year giving its officers greater powers to issue cautions for drug possessions. He quoted as saying, These changes will play a key role in diverting children and adults away from the criminal justice system, thus reducing their likelihood of future criminal involvement. Police will still take appropriate action when required. So it's still... At their discretion. Well, yes, and I mean, as Rod says, you know, the holding, not diverting him, not referring him, they're just holding him for four hours until he goes into withdrawals. So, I mean, it's all about being afraid of that uniform, Jeffrey, as I said off air. Yeah. I still feel nervous when I see a police a police uniform coming towards me. Mm. I get nervous. I get anxious. Yeah. Okay, next subheading is push for decriminalisation in Parliament. In February, um, Reason Party Member of Parliament Fiona Patton tried to push a bill through Victoria's Parliament to end drug criminalisation. Though it was not supported by either of the major parties, she did manage to get the government to agree to consider a localised trial that she described as, quote, effectively decriminalisation. A government spokesperson said uh, there were no plans to decriminalise drugs in Victoria. The details of the trial have gone to a working group to be decided, but Ms Patton hopes it will involve Victoria Police automatically diverting people found with small amounts of drugs to education and treatment. And she's quoted as saying, The harm for everyone relating to drug use in countries where decriminalisation has been in place for a significant period of time is greatly reduced. State Opposition Leader Matthew Guy said Victoria has, quote, bigger problems than drug criminalisation. The concept around decriminalisation or even the possession of illicit drugs, I believe, sends the wrong message at the wrong time. You always hear that? The wrong message. Yeah, wrong message. The wrong yeah, message yeah. at the wrong time. As a parent, I couldn't think of anything worse than sending a message from State Parliament that decriminalisation of drugs is on the agenda. Speaking in February about Fiona Patton's bill, Police Association of Victoria Secretary Wayne Gatt said the government should carefully consider the messaging and impacts of any proposal to decriminalise drugs. And he's quoted as saying, messaging is really important when it comes to drug use because drug use causes harm in our community. What, what a generalisation. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. 
you know, a, a very small amount of, um, you know, drug use can cause harm, but most people use drugs without particularly... Yeah, the numbers of people that they're... Well, it's, as it says in this, the people that they're actually targeting is not only racist, but mm. ageist. Yeah. And yep. it's really about, also about homeless people. Mm. It's the visible people yeah. that they're worried about, yeah? And we never look at the those bigger aspects, do we? Like, There and- are many more people that use drugs that are never identified mm. as drug users than yeah. people who are caught. Yeah. One of the good things about Portugal's decriminalisation was they did try to take into account housing, education, skills, Yeah, it was a holistic holistic approach, approach, yeah, yeah, which is really important. Um, He said any sort of decision-making in this space would have to regard, have to have regard to things like road trauma, have regard to community safety and violence in our streets, things like family violence in our homes and places where we don't necessarily see the impact of drug use, end quote. He also said Victoria needed to invest in more drug treatment facilities. Well, yeah, I can certainly... Agree with that. Yeah, but, you know, I mean... It hasn't happened. Worries on the, about violence in the home. We're talking about alcohol there. Well, if you really... Yeah, not, yeah, concerned about the, the number one cause of family Indeed. violence. In 2018, the state government opened a trial safe injecting room in Richmond after a spate of heroin-related deaths. A review found it recorded 119,223 visits in the first 18 months of operation and saved 21 lives. A second centre is in the works for the Central Business District, but Ms Patton said the process had been bogged down by, quote, politics. There's a lot of people who would rather these people were just not treated as human beings, she said. Addiction specialists say the facilities do save lives, while the state opposition and some nearby residents have raised concerns about incidents they believe are linked to the Richmond injecting room. Mm, I actually think, Geoffrey, that when it comes to, you know, with 119,000 odd visits as saying it's saved 21 lives. I assume that means they've used naloxone 21 times. But with 119,000 visits, I suspect they've actually saved a lot more lives because people haven't been using alone. Yes. So they've been using in a safer space and not and had a place to go and sit yeah. afterwards so they've, if they've had any problems just nodding off, yeah. then they've just been nudged and, and you know, brought back to consciousness. Yeah. So maybe 21 uses of naloxone, but with that many visits, 119,000 visits, yeah, bound to have been more lives saved. They just haven't been counted because they haven't been using naloxone. Well, the key thing is zero deaths. A- absolutely. No deaths at all. Um. Doctors hesitant to prescribe revolution opioid dependence drug. Paul McCartney, a GP at CoHealth Fitzroy, is one of the only doctors in Victoria licensed to prescribe injectable buprenorphine, a drug that can reduce a patient's dependence on opioids for up to a month with each injection. Quote, for some people it's been fantastic. It's been quite freeing and revolutionary for them in really changing the way substance use is impacting them, he said. Despite this, he said, patients face barriers in accessing opioid replacement therapy. 
quoted as saying he's, there's a real shortage of doctors in Victoria who are willing to prescribe the appropriate treatments for people who've become dependent on opioids, he said. It could be argued that the medical profession actually kind of abdicated its responsibility. Dr McCartney said the disadvantage of GPs shying away from treating addiction is that patients have to go to clinics known for specialising in substance use, which can be prohibitive. The alternative is sticking with illicit drugs. He said his facility does not charge for buprenorphine, but many pharmacists do. Rod said drug decriminalisation contributed to his struggle to get secure housing and work over the year. When you're an addict, it dominates your whole life, he said. It took him eight years to complete, but he now has an arts degree, works four days a week and lives in public housing. I spent 20 years trying to make my way, he said. It was a really long struggle. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting I mean, it's focused on one individual, but it yeah, brings into... Yeah, it's an interesting... It doesn't say that he's still using, does it, Jeffrey? Mm, Do you no. assume he's still using? It doesn't really say, does it? It's no. left up to imagination. Be, if he's still using and he got himself a degree at the same time... I'd, the thing is, using doesn't necessarily get rid of your brain cells, right? You still are capable of, of, of being intelligent, yeah. conducting an intelligent yeah. conversation. I, So I'd be interested to know <clears throat> if he's still using. It says he was using for 38 years mm-hmm. and is now 50. Yep. Doesn't say anything about not using anymore. So, But he has got housing by the sound of it. Um no, Although raised, he had a struggle to get it. It raises a lot of the issues that we discuss week in, week out. Um, yeah. So um, thank you, Damo, for referring that. Um, why don't we play Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side and then okay, come back okay. with another story. All right, it's 25 minutes to uh, noon. You're listening to News from the Drug War Front, brought to you by Carmen The Connection with Jeff and Marion in mm. Studio One at 2XX People Powered Radio 98.3 FM. I saw this story from the Herald Sun, Marion, about um, $100,000 a year jobs in the medicinal cannabis uh, industry. Industry, yeah, it's an interesting article. Um, in that, if you can get it, it sounds like a, a good rort. So... Yeah, this was at, uh, in the lifestyle section of the Herald Sun. Medicinal cannabis jobs with a $100,000 salary. Jobs in medicinal marijuana are now among the most sought-after roles in Australia. Here's how to land a huge salary. Uh, jobs that didn't exist six years ago are now among the most sought-after roles in Australia amid surging interest in medical marijuana. Hirers within the legalised cannabis sector say they are inundated with applications for those wanting to work with the drug. Quote, there is a novelty factor that attracts people to work within the industry, says Nathaniel Jones, head of cultivation and grower at manufacturer MedCan Australia. Quote, cannabis was illegal and now, for medicinal purposes, it's not. People like the idea that they can work in and they can have a normal life and they're not a criminal. 
With domestic market sales of cannabis topping $230 million last year and sales tipped to double this year, Jones says there are plenty of opportunities for job seekers. We're quite simply one of the biggest employment booms in Australia right now, Jones says. The growth is astronomical, which is brilliant on two levels, for the consumer and the further development of medicinal cannabis and employment opportunities. I might add, at the beginning of this article, single mum, Joe Freeman's son Cooper has a rare form, there was obviously a picture there, has a rare form of epilepsy, it says, which is being trialled with cannabis oil, but it costs them $60,000 a year. I think She's calling on authorities to make it cheaper. I think that can be done, yeah. Yeah. It's not hard to grow. Well, absolutely, but I think it's actually the um, medicinal, it's the reduction in getting getting the, uh, many people are actually making cannabis oil and making use of every part of the cannabis plant. Anyway, the article goes on. We get, the growth is astronomical for the consumer and for further development of medicinal cannabis and for employment opportunities. Medical cannabis could easily be one of Australia's biggest agricultural crops within the next few years. It has serious potential to be a huge industry in Australia. Despite the high interest, Jones fears many prospective workers are unaware of the opportunities available. Given the production and manufacture of cannabis for scientific and medical purposes was only legalised in Australia six years ago. He says as well as cultivations, workers are needed for post-harvest operations and quality assurance. While some roles require postgraduate qualifications, others require little previous training but have solid promotion opportunities. One of the things I'd like to see is that it's not only taken up by big corporations that yes. have the big profit motive, that it's open to small scale um, It does. It allows production. people to actually... Yeah. yeah. And the point that I was trying to make about the use of the whole plant is this is individual people in, you know, growers in the ACT where you can have two plants mm. and it's not a problem. And people are actually capable of making things like hash oil and um, using the leaves and, you know, using every part of the plant for a range of things, mm. not having nothing to do with smoking it and getting high. So it's really quite, a, you know, a useful plant. It's a and you can plant. do it yeah. on a minimal level mm. um, and make it available to other people, Indeed. which unfortunately is illegal. Yeah. The problem is, you know, getting it down to its cannabidiol, you know, sort of level. Anyway, helping others. Rebecca Carrells, 28, believes her previous experience dealing with oils and waxing in the beauty industry has been beneficial when extracting oil from harvested cannabis. Quote, they, beauty waxes and cannabidiol oil, cannabidiol oil, that's a hard word to say, isn't it? Are pretty similar products as far as consistency goes, says Carrells, a post-harvest supervisor whose role involves drying, curing and packaging the cannabis. Carrells, who moved to Australia last year, says it's rewarding to work in an area that helps others. Quote, in Canada, she says, my grandmother was prescribed cannabis for her cancer. 
she was unable to grow it, so my mum was growing it for her. So I've always known it as medicine, she says. Indeed. That's really important. Indeed, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, how to work with medicinal cannabis. Salaries in the medicinal cannabis sector range from $40,000 to more than 100000 Here are the skills you'll need. Quality assurance manager, a bachelor's or master's degree in physical or biological science, and three to five years experience in a production-based quality assurance role. Quality Assurance Associate, a Bachelor's Degree or Diploma in Physical or Biological Science, a Master Grower and Head Grower, Extensive Experience in Large-Scale Commercial Cultivation and Production, Junior Growers, No Requirements, Supervisors and Team Leaders, Year 12, Plus Supervisor Experience, Cultivation technician, no entry requirements, but tertiary qualification in horticulture, agriculture or plant plant sciences preferred. Post-harvest manager, three to five years leadership experience in related production industry. Post-harvest technician, year 12. Sanitary supervisor or team leader, experience leading a small production team and sanitation technician you just need a year 12 so the source for that was medcan and there's the next heading is growing demand very short bit that says medicinal cannabis industry australia chairman peter crook says growing cannabis indoor in a temperature controlled environment meets continual need for workers unlike other agricultural crops where demand fluctuates according to the season. We might, might not be matching the wages of the vineyards at their peak, that's like grape picking season, but we're employing all year round, says Crook, chief executive Chief Executive of the Cairn Group, which was recently approved for commercial cultivation at its $130 million cannabis facility in Mildura. Almost 200,000 Australians are prescribed cannabis for a range of conditions, including 200,000, that's a lot, Jeffrey, mm. including chronic pain, anxiety, cancer, post-treatment stress disorder. Crock expects that a number to increase that number to increase significantly with growing interest in medicinal cannabis in the nutraceutical and wellbeing space and a move by Australia's sixty thousand odd self medicating marijuana users towards prescription cannabis products. And there's a picture of um, Peter Crock, the company's marijuana growing facility in Melbourne with Big plants. There's going to be huge corporate pressure to um, free up that as a profit making industry. Absolutely. Uh, Well, the need for workers will continue to grow. Sorry, there's one line. The need for workers will continue to grow, and being able to access access enough workers is going to be a pressure point. There's no doubt about that, Crocs says. And being based in Mildura might be an issue too, because housing might be an issue, I think, down in that area. But it's terrific to know that it is growing. Um, I would like to see that it was being made more available at that at that formal level and being accessible to people who've got to pay something like $60,000 a year. Well, that's why we need to, I think, extend the two plants 
to indoors, not just outdoors. Um, there's definitely room for further liberalisation, but we need to allow small-scale people to... To get into that kind of market. To get into market. that kind of market. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and produce their specialty yeah. and, and their knowledge. But well, and the drug testing stuff. When we're talking about pill testing, we should be allying it with drug testing. I mean, really, it's actually the level not of... Um, the intoxicant that we're looking at when we're providing cannabidiol, um, it's actually the level of the uh, the therapeutic ingredient that we should be testing for. Yeah. So the availability of drug testing is really important. I'd love to see what comes out of um, those plants in terms of uh, hash oil, um, what kind of ingredients they've got in it and what kind of intoxicants. Provided. The potential is massive. Yeah. We just need just... to have the laws liberalised. And... Well, you know, if we're going to look at anything, let's look at the states. They're making a fortune over there. And well, the taxation, they, were the, yeah. they were the big, you know, head bangers about, or drum bangers, let's face it, about no drugs. Yep. Yeah, very racist, very sexist, very ageist in their approach to uh, drug enforcement. Let's follow them now that they've liberalised in a lot of states. Yeah, and now they're trying to change everybody's mind because what have they got, 18, 26 states that have made it available? I'm not sure of the exact numbers. 18, I think it was. That have legalised and over 30 for medical. Legally available, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, um, I thought I'd play another Dandy Warhol song. This is a um, a sort of a, a go at uh, another band, um, the J- Brian Jamestown Massacre, yeah. <laughs> Antoine Newcomb, uh, and his heroin use, and it's called Not If You Were the Last Junkie on Earth, <laughs> Dandy Warhols. Great idea. That's All a good right, one, eh? the Dandy Warhols, uh, Not If You Were the Last Junkie on Earth. Yeah. Okay, it's coming up about 10 minutes t- uh, till the end of the program. We've got a um, quick story about National Survey um, about alcohol, tobacco and illicit drugs currently in the field. In mid-2022, the Australian Institute for Health and Welfare will manage the fieldwork for its National Drug Strategy Household Survey. The survey is a national household survey of randomly selected persons aged 14 and over living in residential dwellings. The fieldwork will be conducted by Roy Morgan. The survey started in 1985 and is held every three years, and the 2022 survey is the 14th in the series. The field work will be conducted from April to November 2022. The results of the survey are expected to be released in mid to late 2023. During this time, more than 20,000 people aged over 14 will complete the survey from all states and territories. Multiple methods are available to complete the survey, including online, paper questionnaire and over the phone. All responses are confidential and strictly protected by law. Mm. The survey is part of the Australian Government's National Drug Strategy, which aims to improve Australians' health and wellbeing. Researchers and policymakers use the results of the NSDSHS, National Drug Survey, Household Survey, to better understand issues surrounding tobacco, alcohol and other drugs. Um. The results from the survey provide Australian policymakers and support services important guidance on changes and trends of drug use and attitudes over time. 
In addition to monitoring trends, the survey also captures important data on emergent issues, such as support for pill-testing drug-checking services and emerging policy issues including vaping and medicinal use of cannabis. The survey remains contemporary by continuous development of new questions to ensure the policymakers have access to the latest evidence on emerging issues with a range of new government policies introduced in recent years. To combat the harms caused by drug and alcohol use, future editions of the survey will help policymakers and researchers understand whether these initiatives are working. The results of this survey help improve the delivery of public health programs in your community and tailoring education programs to improve the public health's understanding of harms associated with drug use. Sounds good. (laughs) Theoretically, yeah. 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 Results for the 2019 NSDHS are published in the AIHW website, National Drug Strategy Household Survey. 2019 report. There were 22,272 completed when the survey was last conducted in 2019. For those asked to participate, we hope that you will take the time to complete the survey and share your views and opinions on drug use and policy interventions. For further information about completing the 20-22 NDSHS, including frequently asked questions, See www.aihw.gov.au slash forward slash 2022 NDSHS. I think just go to the Australian Institute for Health and Welfare. And what website, yeah. yeah. And look, I would have to put in brackets, you know, that, that the information is used because I... If it was being used, if it was being paid attention to, there would be a huge change in the government's attitude. One thing that concerns me, Marianne, is it's only um, the survey's only randomly selected people living in residential dwellings. So yes, that's missing so the whole. So don't get the homeless. Yeah, you don't get people. Don't get people who aren't home all the time. Yeah, who aren't sitting next to. Don't have a a desktop maybe aren't there locally when somebody knocks on your door? You know, yeah, they're huge problems. And although I have been asking for feedback from the surveys that have been done with current drug users, that's a problem in itself too. If you can only get feedback via a website... Mm, That excludes people that aren't connected. That is an issue. And there's no obligation of governments for governments to take notice of this information anyway because... When surveys have been done in the ACT, we've got information back from ACT residents saying, yeah, go ahead, and government says, no. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's going to Doesn't mean it's going to happen. Well, look, when inquiries and commissions recommendations get ignored, a survey could easily be ignored. New South Wales just have a look at their pill testing survey and their ICE survey. You know, it just... it knocks my socks off when I think about the amount of effort put into researching, mm. getting information, and it's being roundly ignored or but, just flatly denied that that it exists. Yeah, I remember a girlfriend of mine working in Tasmania, who did um, who did research on injecting drug users in Tasmania when she was working for the Tasmanian government. Department mm-hmm. of Health. 
she did it. And she wasn't allowed to take the results with her when she went into the non-government sector. Oh, okay. And in fact, they denied that it existed. Yeah, Tassie's They said backward. there are no injecting drug users in Tasmania. They maintained that position for <laughs> a long time. Yeah. And largely that had to do with the, the fact that they had poppy growing for the purposes of making morphine yep. on Tasmania because the legislation, the international legislation said you couldn't have a drug use problem in the area. I mean, mm. you know. It, yeah. What kind of crap is that? Yeah. All right, that uh, takes us out from another show. Um, just the last reminder of the karma number 62533643 if you have any concerns or need advice or advocacy or information. Um and the double gay no pay, yep. double gay no pay, six two three zero six three double four or 0436 290 999. But if you want any information on things like the Pat bus, yep. Yep. So we'll we say bye bye. We love you. Take care, everyone. And look after Stay yourselves. Safe. And we want you to be alive for next week. So um, we'll see leave ya. you with uh, the Stranglers and Golden Brown. Take care, everyone. Bye.